what allows us to do and allows has allowed me to do is to use the mountain bike to access places that you couldn't otherwise access because they're, you can't get to them with a van. You can't get to them by foot because they're too far. So it's also a means of really exploring some of the most remote and, and incredible uh, corners of the planet. Episode 286, Mountain Biking in Beautiful Locations Around the World with Mike Bursick. Support for the Adventure Sports Podcast comes from Kind Snacks. Go check them out at kindsnacks.com adventure. There you'll get a 10-snack variety pack for just 10 bucks with free shipping. They'll send you some dark chocolate nuts and sea salt, some roasted jalapeno almond bars, and some of my favorite, my new favorites, are the mango apple chia pressed bars. So check them out and let them know we sent you by going to kindsnacks.com adventure. This episode is sponsored by Health IQ. If you're exercising regularly, don't you think you deserve a special rate on life insurance? Find out how much you can save by taking the health quiz for your adventure sport at healthiq.com adventure. A few minutes on their site could save you a bunch on your life insurance. Get rewarded for all your hard work at healthiq.com adventure. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi friends, thank you so much again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today I have Mike Bursick with us. Mike is visiting today from Toronto, Canada, And Mike has an interesting story. He has had a lifetime of entrepreneurial ventures that are centered around his adventure sports that he loves, primarily mountain biking. But he has a long story about the journey that this has led him on, and I'm excited to hear it. He has a company, Sacred Rides. So you can learn more about what Mike has been up to at sacredrides.com while we're on the podcast today. But Mike, welcome to the program. Really happy to be here, Kurt. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, it's always fun to talk about mountain biking. It's also fun to talk about Canada. And it's also fun to talk about learning how to make a living doing the sports you love to do. So I think this is going to be a great show. How about a little backstory? Um, Where did you grow up and how did you get into adventure sports? Uh, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, Toronto, Ontario, um, Canada. I I guess uh, my first foray into quote-unquote adventure sports was probably canoe trips with my dad uh, growing up. Uh, Ontario, as some people might know, is is a bit of a canoe paradise. There's tons and tons of lakes here. And, and we used to we used to come we used to come to a park called Killarney Park, which is about four hours north of Toronto. And uh, it's just a, a real jewel and just stunning, beautiful landscape. Uh, then we used to every summer come for two or three weeks and just hang out, you know, hang out in the wilderness. And that, I guess, you know, that that sort of engendered in me this love for the outdoors and love for exploring and adventure. And um, and and that's that's stuck with me to this day. And and my dad's no longer with us, but that's uh, probably his his most enduring legacy is just uh, that love of the outdoors and and love of exploring and adventure. Uh, for me and and uh, I guess that you know that was the first foray but from from then it's it's grown into all kinds of uh, all kinds of different adventures and adventure sports from there okay well what kind of adventure sports do you most enjoy I know if you're like a lot of adventurers you could make a list as long as your arm but the question I have is what are your you know your top three or four yeah well <clears throat> these days I have, I have three young kids I have two six-year-olds and a nine-year-old and uh, that's that. That really limits the amount of time I can devote to adventuring. But you know, now I'm getting my uh, my kids into into mountain biking, and mountain biking is still to this day uh, my, my favorite way to get out there. And um, so that's that's a big one for me. I uh, uh, surfing. I, I don't get to do it very often, but whenever I travel, I, I love to be near an ocean and and uh, get out on a surfboard. And I and I kind of suck at it. And I've never really <laughs> devoted. <laughs> I, and like most people, you, you know, serving serving's got a, a crazy learning curve. And unless you devote, you know, a few weeks in a row to really, uh, my experience at least, and a few of my friends, unless you can devote a few weeks in a row to it to really sort of develop that muscle memory and the timing on the wave and that kind of stuff. I typically do, you know, two or three days at a time, maybe between trips. We obviously don't live very close to the ocean, although I have heard there's a good lake wave here, here and just outside of Toronto, but uh, surfing is a big one. 
and um, yeah, canoeing still. I, I, I do a lot of, uh, not a lot, but every year I do, uh, there's a few friends, we go on a, a five or six day uh, whitewater canoe trip. So just love, and that sort of took, you know, my love, when I used to go canoeing with my dad, it was, it was generally flat water canoeing. Uh, on lakes and with big portages sometimes and now about 10 years ago discovered whitewater canoeing which is everything I loved about canoeing the solitude the wilderness but this whole you know this whole element of adrenaline thrown it thrown in minus these big long crazy portages and when you take out the portages it means you can pile on way more you don't have to eat freeze-dried food and so when we go we have like these <laughs> We have these big steaks and we have wine and we have whiskey and all these things that we would never do on a typical backcountry flatwater trip. So uh, I love it. And and as my kids get older, I'm going to start taking them on on these uh, whitewater trips as well. So that's sort of that's sort of the, the main the main bag of uh, of uh, of adventures for me. Uh, let's visit just a little bit about the white water canoeing because we've not talked a lot about that on the show and we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on that because that's not really what we're here to talk about today but are you using a white water canoe or more of a standard canoe No we're using white water canoes and they're they're open boats they're not uh you know in, in the world of white water canoeing you can go whole hog and you can get these you know you can get a, a skirt that fits over top of the the boat and and allows you to tackle big water because you're not uh, bigger water because you're not you know you're not taking water into the boat uh, but we we typically just do open uh open canoes and uh you know the limitation with that is when you start doing bigger stuff like class 3 uh and you know maybe we do short stretches of class 4 you tend to take on a lot of water and when you're loaded down with these big fat steaks and wine and whiskey and all that kind of stuff <laughs> Uh, you take on a little bit of water, all of a sudden you start to get very unstable. So, um, but that's kind of something we're not, we're not really willing to compromise because it's, you know, it's just as much about the experience when we're not on the river as, as it is on the river. And, um, you know, maybe, um, maybe if, if we develop our skills a bit more, we might start tackling bigger stuff, but we've all got kids and we don't really want to, you know, do, do anything too crazy. It's just about getting up. Yeah. Do you use float bags to fill up the front and rear of the canoe and then kneel in the middle or are you just open? No, we have, yeah, we have float bags. Yeah. And we've got the, the thigh straps and, and the whole deal. So, you know, we're, it's, um, we're sort of, uh, advanced, uh, uh, advanced hobbyists, I guess. We're certainly not, uh, you know, the, the, the real crazy, crazy folks out there doing like the class four and five stuff. Uh, but you know, we tackle some pretty, pretty good stuff. That sounds like a ton of fun, I tell you. So if you take the steaks and the wine and everything else out of the canoe, can you do a roll? We've attempted it. <laughs> it's pretty, it, it, it's, it's, that's pretty hard to do with two people uh, in, a, in a canoe. Yeah, no. It's uh, generally, if we tip, it's, we're getting out of that boat pretty quickly. Yeah, I have seen whitewater canoeists that do roll, but usually it's an empty boat. Maybe it does have the spray skirt on it. And it's a one-person canoe with a, a yeah. good rocker. And I've seen people pull it off. I tell you, when I used to kayak, whitewater kayak, when I saw a whitewater canoeist go by, I was like, oh, because those guys, that's tough stuff. That's really tough stuff. It is, yeah. And and it, what I love about it is it, it um, you generate, uh, you, you develop a real appreciation for rivers and water dynamics and how... Um, just like you would with a kayak, but you know, with a kayak, you can get away with more because it's, you know, you can, you can, you can be a little bit sloppy with your technique. And if you go over, it's relatively easy to pull a roll with a canoe. You know, when you, when you dump, all your stuff is probably going to dump out of the canoe. And if it's a long stretch of rapids, you're going to be swimming a long way. You're going to be chasing your stuff and your stuff might end up a kilometer down the river. Um, so you really you really have to get good at, at how to read rivers. So typically when we're doing, you know, anything that's beyond a, a class two, we're going to get out and we're going to walk every inch of that rapid and we're going to talk about uh, how we're going to approach each each section of river and what we're going to do. And I, I, I just love that. You know, I, I just geek out on that stuff and, uh, um, you know, love love sort of analyzing and, and dissecting a river and and how it's going to push the boat and, and where it's going to take us and how we're going to react. And then, of course, you know, as they say, uh, best laid plans and, and so forth. <laughs> right. You get, you get on the river and it's like everything you've talked about 
all of a sudden something pushes you off course and like, oh, new plan. Surprise. Time to adjust. Yeah. And then uh, and then I just love that 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 feeling of, OK, we got to improvise and the adrenaline's flowing and and um, you're just you're, you're making super fast decisions on the fly and you're having to communicate with your partner. And it's just uh, it, it's just a lovely dance of of uh, trying to trying to stay afloat and, and working with each other and working with the river and. Yeah, wow. You you're in the right place for it. Ontario is amazing. When I went through Ontario, it seemed to me this is my memory, my impression that every hilltop was a forest and every valley was a lake. You know, it was just so beautiful, so beautiful. Yeah, we we actually um, there are some good rivers in Ontario. We've 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 pretty much done them all. The ones that you can do like a multi day whitewater trip, um, but we've also done a lot in Quebec. And Quebec is a you know, just east of us, and it's a it's a whitewater canoe paradise there. There's there's tons of amazing rivers there, and we've just scratched the surface of uh, of what's available there. You could spend a lifetime exploring. I have to ask because I know that some of our listeners are going to be curious. Mike, we have listeners from around the planet. Nearly every nation on earth downloads our show, which is really really cool. But not of not all of them know about Canada very well. So the question I have is: How long is your canoe season, and how cold are the winters? <laughs> so canoe season um that depends on how much you're willing to uh to suffer and if you if you don't mind cold water and you don't mind big water you could start as early as you know beginning of april depending on what the you know how how things are melting stuff like that but if you go out in april you're probably going to be facing some huge water um or you'll be dealing with with snow um and you know maybe even in sections of flat water you might have some ice uh and then you get into may uh and may can often be really big water as well but may is black fly season and boy can that can that ever be mm. ferocious yeah. i mean we're we're you know we're talking about drive you straight to the loony bin um it's it can get really bad and you know you'll 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 wear a bug net but then you might have a tiny little you know, one inch section of exposed skin and you'll have 20 black fly bites there and you'll be bleeding all over the place. So we, we tend to go end of June, uh, you know, July kind of thing. And it's lower water maybe not quite as exciting, but, uh, very few bugs. And you could go, you know, you could go straight into October, end of October, if you want to do that, but probably most rivers, you're going to be facing sections where you're going to be getting out of the boat and, and dragging your boat. And, um, and in terms of winters, Gee, I, I guess not, you know, I, I think winter in Toronto is probably not too different from winter in Denver. Um, maybe a little bit less snow uh, than, than you. Toronto doesn't get a lot of snow. If you go farther, you know, a few hours north of the city, we get a lot of snow. And the winters are pretty mild uh, here. You know, I would say, let's see if I convert that to Fahrenheit. Maybe, you know, a cold day might be 25 Fahrenheit, but usually hovering around freezing kind of thing. So... But certainly, there's plenty of places in Canada you can go where it's uh, winter can get pretty pretty nasty. Right. Well, that's cool. So around Toronto itself, more mild. Sounds like it's a lot more doable, and you have a, a decent season for canoeing. So awesome, man. Hey, friends. Kurt here. You know, we might have the healthiest audience of any podcast on the planet. I don't know. It It, it just seems to me that people that are out there doing adventure sports have to be pretty healthy, they appreciate being healthy, and they love to get out there and move. And we recently got a new sponsor, Health IQ, and they reward people who love to be healthy. This is cool stuff. So do you exercise five times a week? If so, then you probably think you deserve a different rate on your life insurance. You're not the smoker, you're not the one who's out there abusing his or her body and and having a lot of health issues that result. Instead, you're out there moving and eating right and doing right things. So shouldn't your premiums be lower? Health IQ uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, strength trainers, vegans, and more. Matter of fact, research shows that those who frequently exercise with some intensity have a 22% lower cancer risk, a 56% lower heart disease risk, and up to a 34% lower risk of an early death. So why not get rewarded for that? Historically, you get penalized for your family history, body mass index, and other attributes, but you don't get rewarded 
for your health-conscious lifestyle. Well, Health IQ does reward you for your health-conscious lifestyle with special rates on life insurance. How cool is that? To get more information and a free quote, go to healthiq.com forward slash adventure and make sure you do use that forward slash adventure that makes sure that they know where you heard about them on the Adventure Sports Podcast. So healthiq.com forward slash adventure. Let's go back a little bit. You said to me before we started up that um, after growing up in Toronto, you made your way to Fernie, British Columbia, which is a ski town, and you went there. Why did you go there? What's the story behind that? Well, um, there is there is the the story of when I went there when I was actually going out there, and there's the story there's the story of. Uh, that I kind of tell myself that I, that I've realized what really happened when I went out there. And when I went there, uh, as I was telling you the day after my last exam at university, I had a old green Volvo station wagon and I, and I packed it up with all my stuff, um, my skis and my bike and my guitar. And I just drove, uh, out West. It was about 2,200 miles. And, um, three days later I ended up in Fernie, BC and um, really, at the time, it was just I, I didn't. I knew I didn't want to work in my field. My, I'd gotten a degree in economics and history, and I didn't really see what I was going to do with either of those things. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to become a ski bum, and uh, for a year, and then I'll then I'll figure out quote unquote real life. And that right. you know that sort of that sort of sent me down this uh, the path that I'm I'm on to this day. You know, a lifetime devoted to adventure. But you know, becoming older and wiser, I'm 46 now. Looking back at that, it was um, you know more of an escape uh, than anything. Just uh, leaving you know leaving things behind that were were troubling me, or you know, and and as they say, uh, wherever you go, there you are, and you can only run away from your your troubles for so long until they catch up to you. Right. And uh, that that stuff pulled me back to Toronto about 11 years ago. So how long were you in Fernie? Sounds like a long time. Yeah, a, a, a decade, almost to the day. Wow, 10 years in Fernie sounds like a cool place, too. Describe what that's like there. Uh, yeah, Fernie is, is uh, sort of your classic Rocky Mountain ski town. Um, not too dissimilar to a lot of ski towns in Colorado. I, I visit a lot, of, a lot of towns in Colorado. Um, you know, it, uh, it historically has had a, a resource base, so coal mining, forestry, that kind of stuff. And then <clears throat> beginning in the, I would say, sort of mid mid to late 80s, the ski hill, it was just a little family ski hill uh, back then, but the owner started to develop it. And then in the late 90s, it got bought out by a, a, a larger company that really started to uh, devote, you know, put a lot of money into the ski hill and really opened up a lot of terrain and new amenities, new chairlifts, that kind of stuff. And it really... Back in the late '90s, early 2000s, it really started to develop a reputation in the in the ski world, and it got tons of coverage in the press. Um, it, it, you know, the, the ski hill is is truly an amazing ski hill, and it is it is blessed with a, a ton of snow. I think the average is about uh, is over 30 feet of snow a year, so it's really known for amazing powder skiing and these big, wide open bowls that uh, you know, if you love uh, if you love skiing powder and if you love skiing fast, you can just uh, you can just open it up in there. And uh, when I first moved there, it was you know it was, it was starting to get really well known for skiing, but summer was um, summer was really really the off season. You know, tumbleweeds would be going down Main Street in the summer, and then gradually over time, it has started to develop uh, a real reputation as a as a you know summer sports paradise, uh, adventure sports paradise. Incredible mountain biking, incredible hiking. Uh, there's great whitewater on the Elk River and other rivers around there. Fly fishing, you name it. It's um, and it's and it's tiny. It's only six thousand people, and it's uh, it's quite isolated. It's three hours from Calgary, and in one direction, in the other direction, it's an hour to Cranbrook, which is not much of a bigger town. So it's uh, it's quite a isolated and and very lovely little community. 
And it sounds like you must have done a lot of mountain biking around there too. Oh boy, did I did I ever? You know, I, I started my company uh, the summer after I moved there in um, September of '95, and I started my company the next uh, the following spring. And you know, those those early years, I was I was guiding, I was cooking, I, you know, I was I was on every single trip. So I was probably putting in over, you know, over a hundred days and most of those pretty full days on, on my mountain bike, um, you know, just, just riding, riding tons and, and not just around Fernie, but all over the province and exploring and trying to find new areas and new trails. And, uh, yeah, I, I logged a lot of miles on my, on my bike. Well, that's really cool. I'd like to spend some time on mountain biking because you sound like the kind of person that could really give us a lot of good tips and a lot of good stories about mountain biking. So let's dive into that a little bit. So um, I, my third year of university, I think that would have been 1993, I guess I want to say something like that. Um, I grew up just, just gaga about biking in general. Um, you know, when I was a, a little kid, I, <clears throat> I got, my parents got me a bike and then they said, you can, you can take this bike, uh, on our street and you can bike on our street, but we don't want you to go anywhere else. And our street was about a hundred yards long. Uh, and I used to, <clears throat> I used to bike up and down the street for hours at a time. And my neighbors thought I was, I was totally weird. Cause here's this little kid who would just spend, you know, two, three hours biking up and down the same street. But I was just nuts about it. And I, and I didn't actually put a foot on a mountain bike until my third year of university. And, um, and that was kind of, you know, the, the late 80s, early 90s. That was when mountain biking was really starting to hit the mainstream. And uh, I, I heard about this thing, and and um, I just thought, geez, this is amazing. You know, wilderness, the outdoors, plus cycling, what a match made in heaven. And so I decided I was going to get a mountain bike, but I couldn't really afford a full mountain bike, or at least I didn't think I could. And so I got I got a mountain bike magazine, and there was an, there was an ad, and the, there was, you know, those the, the mail order bike companies in, in the back of the magazine and uh and it, and i found a company that i thought looked good and i found a and i found a frame a bike frame i couldn't afford a whole bike so i ordered a frame and it was a company called balance which is uh no longer in business but a week later a frame showed up and uh so i put that on the wall and i and i hung my hung the frame up in the wall and then a few weeks later when i when i had a little bit more money i ordered a set of forks and back then they were like one inch travel forks <laughs> and uh yeah and, and gradually and i think it took probably about four or five months before i finally got the whole bike and, you know towards the end i had this full bike but there was no seat and no pedals because i couldn't afford those and in hindsight probably a really dumb way to to buy a bike because you end up paying way more that way but uh I, I built it from scratch and um and the first time i got on that thing i was i was just hooked and wow. uh and i think about you know a year later or so i was i was on my way out to fernie and that uh and that really you know when i got to the rockies and and discovered mountain biking in real mountains that was that was it you know it was like crack cocaine i was hooked well, that's kind of fun, though, because you learn so much about bike maintenance and, and the components of the bike because you're putting it together. So what a fun way to get into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like, I like, I like that spin on it. Okay, so you've been doing mountain biking for a long time, and you've even made it a big part of your career. So we got to ask you a, a few questions about just what is mountain biking all about. And we've covered this on the show a little bit, but for listeners who haven't heard it, they're going to love this. Um, how is mountain biking different from just your everyday riding a bike somewhere? Um, you know, it, it, this this ties into the name of my company, Sacred Rides, which I can get deeper into that story. But it, it refers to this um, this day I had in Peru, which to this day, you know, is one of the best days I've ever had on a bike or any sport. And um, you know, what mountain biking allows you to do when when you've got a bike that you can go off road you can get away from pavement you can get away from cars you can get deep into the wilderness and you, you know you can really get to some amazing places you get to you get to places where you know it's just you and the forest or the mountain or wherever it is uh, and nothing else and the other thing especially if you're riding a more technical trail is you are forced to you're forced to focus 100% on what you're doing and because if you don't you're going to end up, you know, you're going to end up on your butt or, or worse yet. Um, and so you have to focus a hundred percent on, on the trail and what it is that you're doing. And it really sharpens your mind. And, you know, rock climbers 
will know what I'm talking about in kayakers and in any sport where there's an element of adrenaline or danger that that forces you to really focus your attention and that is to me extremely meditative because you know there's there's uh, there I don't have the luxury of thinking about my mortgage or my kids or you know a million other responsibilities it's just me and totally living in the present moment and um, you know I, I meditate as well and I <clears throat> I meditate every morning and I've been doing it for years. Uh, I find, you know, for me to get into that state of present awareness is a million times easier on a mountain bike. And, um, and, and I just love that feeling of being completely in the present moment and being out in the wilderness. And, you know, for, for my, for, for my company, what we do is we create these experiences and these trips all over the world and what it allows, uh, what allows us to do and allows, has allowed me to do is to use the mountain bike to access places that you couldn't otherwise access because they're, you can't get to them with a van. You can't get to them by foot because they're too far. So it's also a means of really exploring some of the most remote and, and incredible uh, corners of the planet. Wow. So that's why you have the name Sacred Rides. Well, it, it refers to uh, an experience that to me was extremely sacred, not in any sort of religious sense. Uh, and it also happened to take place in the Sacred Valley of Peru. Oh, cool. And uh, just brought, it just brought together all these elements of, uh, you know, what I, what I feel uh, constitutes something sacred. Right. So now you guide others so that they can have similar experiences. Uh, do you find that people, when they're, I guess, less familiar with a mountain bike, maybe they're learning more about how to ride, do they also get into the zone like you're talking about? Do, do you get to share that experience with them? Uh, maybe even more so because, um, you know, I've been doing it for so long. I've gotten I've gotten pretty skilled at it, and so it's uh, it's relatively easy for me to just kind of most of the trails that I'll ride around here kind of cruise my way through them and they don't, they don't push me that much. And so I'm not forced to focus as much as I might, you know, on a more difficult trail where I really have to focus. So, um, but when you're, when you're a beginner and you're just starting out, uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're being tested and uh, you've got to focus on what you're doing and it really sharpens the, the senses and, and the attention. And, and also, you know, I, I want to be careful here that I'm not painting this picture of mountain biking as this crazy deadly sport because the sport has a bit of an image problem. And, and most people, when they think of mountain biking, if they've never done it, they probably see posters or videos of, you know, some, some young guy doing a backflip off a, off a cliff in Utah or something like that. And certainly there's people who do that, but that's, you know, that's 0.1% of, of the people who mountain bike. And most people are out there just having a good time in the forest, out in, out in you know, on the mountains, wherever. Uh, their wheels are on the ground at all times. And uh, so I don't want to paint this overly, you know, dangerous or, or uh, a crazy picture of the sport. When I, it's been years since I had, uh, since I had a bad fall. And every mm -hmm. now and then when I go, when I, every now and then when I go, I might have a, a little fall and I'll get an abrasion on my knee or something like that. But, you know, th that's, that's, that's pretty much it. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I used to, uh, we used to run these mountain bike camps in the Don Valley here in Toronto and, uh, we had different levels, but I used to always work with the beginners and, and I just loved it because they would come into it. Um, you know, really hesitant and a little bit scared, and we would we would meet every week for six weeks, and by the end of it, they're just chock full of confidence. They've learned these incredible skills on a mountain bike, and and I would get people telling me like, you know, thank you so much for helping me uh, learn this sport and develop my confidence, and it's and it's carried over into the rest of my life. I've developed confidence uh, to tackle other areas of my life, and uh, that's just really you know really cool to see uh, oh, when yeah. that happens. Yeah, and in addition to that, I have to say that when people find a, a very active sport, which mountain biking is, that they can really plug into, that they love, that will call them out of the everyday to go do more of that sport, then, man, it makes them healthier. It gives them a, a really good reason to get out and move. And even when they can't mountain bike, it's a, a motivator to get in better and better shape so when they can mountain bike, they'll have that much more fun. So I just love adventure sports the way that they do that. It's awesome when you can add that into your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about sacred rides. Um, so you do training, you do guiding. Do you provide equipment or do people bring their own stuff? How does that work? 
Well, um, well, let, let, let me correct you a little bit. We don't okay. really do we don't really do mountain bike training. I mean, we do on all of our trips. You know, our our our, our main our main thing we do is these five to fourteen day mountain bike adventures around the world. Um, in uh, a lot of our trips, we will. You know, we'll we'll start the trip off with an hour or two of just you know reviewing reviewing skills stuff like that. It's not you know we don't really have a formalized program in place to provide mountain bike training. Our our guides are generally quite skilled. Many of them have uh, instructor certificates, and they'll offer you know they'll offer hints and tips along the way. But it's not you know we don't offer proper mountain bike training. Um, and there's plenty of other places you can go if you know if what you're looking to do is is uh, really boost your skills. But um, uh, you know, mostly is what we do is these adventures around the world. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't really do any uh, guiding or anything like that anymore. The company's grown and I've got three kids and I stay close to home. But, um, yeah, what, what, what we do is we put together these, these fully uh, all-inclusive packages. You just have to get to the starting point. You know, for instance, in Peru, uh, you just got to get to Lima. We're going to pick you up at the airport. And for the next 10 days, we'll take care of everything, your lodging, your food, the guides, the transportation, cold beers at the end of every day, you know, interesting cultural experiences, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to think about anything except riding your brains out and, and having an amazing uh, cultural experience uh, alongside this mountain bike experience. So that's that's really what we're looking to do is just give people just the adventure of a lifetime uh, on, on every trip that we run. That sounds fantastic. I love the sound of that. Now, do people bring their own bikes or are the bikes provided or both? Um, so uh, about two thirds of our, of our customers bring their own bike simply, you know, if they're going somewhere for a week or 10 days, they want to be on, on a ride that's familiar and about a third people, whether, uh, whether they've, you know, never packed up a bike and they don't feel like going through the hassle or maybe they're traveling, you know, sticking around for a week or two after their, their bike trip and they don't want to lug their bike around, uh, people rent as well. And we have, we have really high quality rentals available and, uh, every location. Awesome. So how skilled do you have to be before you could be on one of these rides? Uh, good question. The, um, the, the majority of our trips are kind of fall in the strong intermediate to advanced range. So you don't have to be a pro mountain biker by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it does have to be, you know, a regular something that you do regularly it's not just you know once or twice a year i go out mountain biking with my cousin something like that it's like you know you're the type of person it's one of your it's one of your top three outdoor kind of pursuits and you're active and you're you're fit and you like to get out there uh and explore uh and we do have a few trips that are you know really advanced level like our moab trip for instance that's a pretty uh, advanced level trip but then we also have an, uh, a line of trips they're they're called our they're called our explorer trips and those are more for the strong beginner, intermediate uh, level riders. So you could you could go on a trip like that if you've never mountain biked before, but you know you better be pretty fit and adventurous and and willing to be be challenged. And uh, you know challenge is a is a core element of all of the trips that we offer. We want we want we want people to experience the the thrill and the the learning and and the growth that comes with a challenge, whether it's a physical challenge or you're being technically challenged on your mountain bike and um you know our, our our guides are extremely good at helping people sort of explore and push their limits without pushing them too far and when you start you know bumping up against your limits that's when you really start to see growth you start to be able to do new things on a mountain bike you start to develop confidence that spills over into other areas of your life and uh that's really you know one of the main goals is we want people to have an amazing mountain bike trip. We want them to have an amazing adventure experience, but we also want them to have uh, somewhat of a transformative experience. So when they come back, they don't come back the exact same person that they were when they went on the trip. Oh, I love that. I love that theme. I love that approach. And it's really what adventure sports are all about. I think that's one of the biggest benefits of adventure sports is that you learn so much about yourself and you are challenged and you do grow. And uh, so cool, man. So what about lodging? I know that people have these questions just real quickly. Do you, do you camp? Do you stay in hotels? What, what can you expect? No camping. Um, we back, you know, back in the day when I first started the company, uh, we, we did camping trips and, um, you know, camping was fine when we were running three or four trips uh, a year. You know, back then our season was 
end of June through the beginning of September, and maybe we would run three or four trips. And uh, that was fine. But then we started to get busier, and we were running a lot of back-to-back trips. And, you know, the life of a, uh, of a guide uh, on one of our trips back then was, uh, was get up at 6 in the morning, start cooking breakfast. You, you know, the, the, the customers, clients would get up 7, 7.30. They'd have some breakfast. They'd go hit the trails around 8.30. And then come back and cook dinner. And often, you know, doing dishes until 11 o'clock or midnight and, and camp cleanup and stuff like that. And that's fine if you do a week, maybe two weeks. But once you start doing, you know, two or three trips in a row, it was just it was just burning everybody out. And they just couldn't uh, keep that up. And also our, our, our customers said, hey, I like this camping thing. But uh, at the end of the day, I want to I want to come back to a nice hot shower and I want to I want to have a nice, big, comfortable bed to sleep in. So we stopped doing camping back then. And uh, there's there's all kinds of different lodging on our trips. There's these beautiful backcountry lodges. There's uh, B and B's. There, you know, one one thing you won't find on any of our trips is is motels or or chain hotels, anything like that. We always select unique uh, unique places that have some local character, and we want <clears throat> we want the the lodging to be part of the overall experience and part of the overall story. So we're offer, often finding unique, quirky places. You know, sometimes the the owners are real you know, adventure sports enthusiasts or, you know, their, their, their characters in their own right. And they, they kind of enhance the experience. Uh, so that's, that's always a key consideration when we're choosing the lodging. And sometimes we have no choice, you know, if we're in a remote valley and there's only one place, that's where we'll stay. But uh, often we're, you know, we'll be quite careful about the lodging we select. That makes it even more fun. How cool is that? So what countries do you operate in? So we're in Canada. Um, we're in the United States. We have trips in Moab and, uh, California, uh, sorry, Utah and California. We've got trips outside of Moab in Utah, uh, Guatemala, Peru. We're in, uh, the Argentinian side of Patagonia. Um, we, we have trips in the Azores, just in the middle of the Atlantic ocean, Switzerland and Italy, Slovenia and Croatia, Nepal and New Zealand. And our newest trip is in Greenland. Fat biking trip in Greenland. Wow. So I tried to get all that jotted down because I was really curious. I'm going to go over it again just for fun. Uh, Canada, US, which is Moab and California, Peru, Argentina, Guatemala, the Azores, uh, Switzerland, Italy, Nepal, New Zealand, and even Greenland. And Croatia and Slovenia. Pretty good, though. (laughs) Croatia and Slovenia. Holy cow. So people could literally see the world on your trips. They could select where they want to go, explore a place, and uh, with your help and with your guides, they can do it from a mountain bike. I love that. Yeah, and with our our new getaways program, you know we're we're rapidly expanding that list. Uh, we're all kinds of uh, all kinds of places all over the world we we haven't been in uh, before. And uh, if that keeps going the way it's going, we'll have you know we'll have trips in almost every country on earth in the next few years. Oh, that is cool. So your business is growing and expanding and and new horizons, new locations. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to be an adventure sports entrepreneur. It sounds like you have lived that life for a while. I'd love to hear about your journey. How can people get an adventure-focused lifestyle? Well, I guess, you know, my story is uh, somewhat interesting. Uh, When I moved to Fernie, I got a job as uh, as a lifty at the local ski hill, and uh, Within a few weeks, I got fired. <laughs> uh, uh, I won't go too too deep into the reasons for that, but um, shortly after that, I got a job as the day shift bartender at a bit of a rough and tumble miners bar. And within a f- within I think about three months, I got fired from that as well. And uh, I realized that I, that I didn't I didn't exactly make a great employee, and that maybe my path lay in creating something from you know of my of my own for myself. And um, I was I was walking along the river trail in Fernie one day with a couple of friends and sort of pondering, you know, I'd just gotten fired from the bartending job and pondering what I was what I was going to do next. And uh, my friend said, well, you're totally nuts about mountain biking and there's all these trails around here and they're kind of hard to find. And maybe maybe people will pay you to show them around on the local trails. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought oh, that's 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 interesting. But then, you know, he planted a, a bit of a seed. And that seed grew over the next few weeks, and I thought, "Damn, that's a good idea." And uh, I managed to convince another friend to join me as my partner, and he left 
about year five, and uh, <clears throat> and and we started our company. We got a we got a ten thousand dollar loan, and we bought a fleet of bikes, and we had enough money to to uh, create some brochures and hang up a sign on the highway. And um, back then, you know, it was nineteen ninety six. It was still very early days of the internet, but uh, we we got up we got a pretty crappy looking website up. Um, but you know, it it was uh, it took a few years to to get any traction with that. Um, but these, you know, these days, just to give you an example of what it was like advertising in that day, we spent a good chunk of our money uh, on these little ads in the back of Outside Magazine. And uh, it, back in the day, that was this was really you know pre um, websites existed, but nobody really used them. Right. And uh, so you you wouldn't advertise your website in the ad you you'd put you know call 1-800 whatever or circle 123 on your reader card if you want more information and uh readers would have this card that came with the magazine and the ads and the companies they were interested they would circle the appropriate number on the card and they would mail it into outside then outside would take all of those uh cards that come in and they would compile, you know, all of the 123s, and they would send us a list of all the people, their name and addresses that wanted more information. Then we would take that list, and you know, this was this list was just typed out on a piece of paper, and we would mail catalogs to all of these people, and that would sometimes take you know six to eight weeks between when they circled that number and when they actually got a catalog. Wow. Uh, so not the most efficient way to get people information uh, back then, but we still, you know, eventually managed to make it fly. But these days, wow, like the the tools that are um, uh, the tools that are available to people to start a business, um, you know, just incredible. Um, look at you know, look at a tool like Kickstarter where you don't even have to have a business; you can just have an idea and you can put it online and see do people do people like this idea you know maybe you want to do uh you know you want to you want to start pioneering adventure trips on the moon or something like that you can create you can spend five hundred dollars create a a semi snazzy video put that online and and 30 days later you've got half a million dollars in funding in your account because people just love the idea and you know you can get a squarespace website for ten dollars a month that looks super professional and you know all these amazing tools available to you so there's really you know if you're if you're into adventure and you have an idea and it's and it's been kind of bubbling around in the back of your mind for a little while you really have no excuse it's so easy to try out a new idea and the tools available you know through social media stuff like kickstarter web whatever you know there's so much stuff out there to help you find people that uh, that are into the same things that you're into very fun so how long did it take before you said, okay, I've got an income that I can live with and I can get on with life now? Oh, boy. Um, so back, um, back, back then, the late 90s, um, I think it was 1998, I bought my first house and I, I bought it for $91,000. And I generally had a couple roommates that would pay most of my mortgage. And I had sponsors that were giving me free bikes and ski passes at the ski hill were on average about $400 for season's pass. So my, my cost of living was really low. And back then, my motivation was just, you know, live sort of the classic uh, ski bum, dirtbag life. And just, I didn't need a lot of money. I just wanted to ski all winter and I wanted to be on my mountain bike uh, the whole summer. So I really didn't need a lot of money. And, and I sort of approached my business the same way. I wasn't really that motivated to hustle and, and, uh, and you know get a lot of money out of it it was supporting it was supporting my lifestyle and i was having a lot of fun doing it um and it and it grew you know despite my my lack of serious effort it grew over the years but um you know it wasn't until after about 10 years i ended up moving back to toronto and um it wasn't until and and then a couple years after that uh, i had my first child this was back in 2000 and um 2008 my first, my daughter was born, and that that will get you serious in a hurry, right? And uh, and that's when I I started realizing, hey, you know, if I'm going to continue doing this, uh, I better I better start hustling, and I better start learning, learning, you know, figuring out how to do this uh, thing called entrepreneurship. So it was um, within a year or a year or two of that, um, 
it was it was earning enough that I could have a full and I didn't have to do other things. Uh, and up until you know those first couple of years in Toronto, I was doing other stuff on the side in the off season. Uh, but then you know <clears throat> shortly after started adding international trips, and then our season went from being you know m- mid to end of June to early September. Back then to now, it's you know fully year round season. We we offer trips uh, every month of the year and almost every week of the year. Wow! So you've really put in your time and learned a lot of lessons about how to build an adventure focused lifestyle, how to be an entrepreneur in the adventure space. Um, do you help other people along the way? Because I'm sure that there are others that would like to do something, but you know they don't want to necessarily take that amount of time to get there. I do, yeah. Uh, for the last six years or so, I've, I've been doing, um, you know, quite a lot of stuff on the side, uh, from workshops to boot camps to one-on-one consulting, uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and the two primary groups that I work with, I work with people who who want to start or want to grow a business in the adventure travel space, and I also work with social entrepreneurs, so entrepreneurs who want to start a business that. Um, doesn't just have a financial mandate, but there's a social mandate to it as well. And um, yeah, and, and if anybody wants to know more about, uh, I don't, you know, because I'm busy with a lot of other stuff, I don't do a lot of that anymore, but I do have a few few people that I work with on a, on a limited basis. And if you go to mikebersick.com, B-R-C-I-C, um, you can find more info about my consulting. B-R-C-I-C. Okay. Yeah. So you're missing a couple of vowels in that name there. I think so, yeah. <laughs> B-R-C-I-C, I love it. Bursick. Okay, yeah. MikeBursick.com, and people can get more information. Hey, guys, this is Travis. I'd like to talk for a moment about Kind Snacks. Kind recently became a sponsor of the Adventure Sports Podcast, and we are stoked to have them with us because Kurt and I were Kind customers long before they became sponsors of the show. We truly do buy Kind bars to throw in our hydration packs for a mountain bike ride or our backpacks when we're out on the trail. We grab Kind Snacks instead of others because we can actually pronounce the ingredients on the back of the package, and they all taste awesome. You guys need to take advantage of the deal they're giving our listeners. Simply go to kindsnacks.com adventure to get a 10-bar sampler case for just 10 bucks. Think about it. That's only a dollar a bar. Then because we know you're going to love them and you're going to go back for your second order, Kind is going to give you your $10 back by discounting your second order. That's a no-brainer, so don't wait. Go get your 10-bar sampler case now. Go to kindsnacks.com slash adventure. All right, I'll let Kurt get back into the interview. Guys, don't wait. Go check out that deal. By now, you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. Well, thanks for giving back again. You know, just out of curiosity, if someone has a a good idea, they're willing to work hard at it, and they're going to plug in with you to get those those i guess startup tricks so that they can move things along more quickly um and let's just assume that they're on the the road to success how long do you think it takes to uh develop a business you can live with oh um i mean that that really varies and it really depends on the person um i you know i i often say and i've worked with hundreds of people over the years and the the number one thing that really, uh, I think, is the contributing factor success. It has nothing to do with the idea or the or the or the product or the the industry or your capital. It really has to do with the entrepreneur and their resilience and their their ability to endure pain. Because there's going to be pain along there's going to be pain along the way, and if you are somebody who gets easily easily thrown off course by difficulty 
or difficulties, you're going to have a hard time um, in this world. And, and even though there's all these tools out there that make it so much easier to be an entrepreneur, everybody else has access to those same tools. So the competition is, is fierce. And, you know, back when I started my company, uh, there was pretty much, there was, you know, this is 21 years ago. There's hardly anybody doing in the, in the entire world that was doing what we were doing, which was, you know, these, these week long trips for specifically for mountain bikers and doing actual proper mountain biking. Um, now there's hundreds and hundreds of companies all over the world, maybe thousands, uh, doing this thing. So it is easier to, to get into it, but you also, if you really want to sort of reach that, you know, that level where you can make this a full-time thing, uh, you've got to be willing to hustle and you've got to be willing to uh, persist and, and be able to uh, endure, endure pain and suffering mm. along the way. So it takes uh, but, a lot you know, of tenacity. It does. To answer your question, you know, if you, if you <clears throat> have what we call in the entrepreneurial world good product market fit, i.e. you've developed a product or service that the world actually needs and, and wants, and you understand who your customer is, um, you know, you can, you can very quickly, uh, you can very quickly become, um, you know, successful and profitable with this. So, you know, my latest, uh, my latest venture, which is something called Mastermind Adventures, very quickly has, has caught on because it, it addresses a real, a real need uh, in the market in a very specific niche focused uh you know customer base and and i guess that you know that that would be one piece of advice i would give people if they're looking to to break into the adventure space or maybe they've already you know got an adventure travel company but they're they're struggling to to get it off the ground is go really narrow focus on a very small uh customer base and get to know them really well and create something that really uh really addresses well a specific problem that they're having you know, maybe uh, maybe it's adventure trips for people with disabilities. Uh, you know, water-based trips uh, for people with disabilities, for instance. There's probably not a lot out there like that, and there's probably a lot of people who would be into that. And when you when you get really narrow focus, it's a lot easier. You know who the customer is, and it's a lot easier to find them, and it's a lot easier to know what it is that they want and and uh, what are some of the problems they're facing, and then hence you can really tailor it to them. And you do that. You get, you know, you get people begging for your your product, uh, your service, and from there, you can, from there, you can branch out and you can, you know, you can expand into adjacent markets or adjacent customer bases. But um, uh, too too often, I see I see people start really really broad and they think, oh, I don't want to exclude people. But when you try to be everything to everybody, then you end up being, you know, nothing to anyone. So that's uh, one piece of advice I would give is like really, really hone in and, and don't be afraid to have a really narrow niche focus. Wow. That's a good word. So how do you apply that principle with your sacred rides? Um, we have developed, we've developed four different product lines. Um, and each of them, each of them occupies a different, uh, different section of the website. So they're very, they're very um, clearly delineated and they serve different markets. Um, so we have our, our core product is our single track rides, and those are for skilled, experienced mountain bikers. I mentioned the Explorer rides, which are, you know, people who are just starting to get into the sport. Um, we have uh, a line of women's trips, so they are women only. And um, that, you know, addresses a particular concern women were having, reflective of the of the demographics of mountain biking, which is a heavily male-dominated sport, we would get women coming on our trips, <clears throat> and they would say, I, I really love the trip, the guys are incredible, but, you know, I was the only women among, uh, you know, eight guys, or maybe there was only two of us, you know, among 10 or something like that, and uh, and sometimes that can get a little bit of a competitive kind of testosterone uh, thing, and not that women don't like that, but some women uh, just want to get out there and they just, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to have to compete or anything like that. So we developed this line of, of, uh, women's only trips that addressed a very specific need. And that line has done uh, very well for us. And then finally we have, uh, what we call our bring your partner trips. So we noticed that a lot of our customers were, <coughs> excuse me, um, typically guys in their forties, uh, or even their 50s, and they had partners, a wife or a girlfriend that didn't mountain bike, and but you know they couldn't they couldn't really spare time away from home and and not bring their their partner with them, and so people were asking you know could I bring my my wife on this trip with me, and back then we didn't uh, 
back then we didn't really have a, a way to address that. So we developed a line of trips. So the idea is if you're a mountain biker, whether you're a, whether you're a woman or a man, you go on this trip, you bring your partner and and if they don't mountain bike, then we have a separate itinerary for him or her. And that could be stuff like hiking, you know, whitewater rafting, uh, cultural excursions, stuff like that. Um, stuff where you don't necessarily need a lot of a lot of skill. But then there's also some time together during the trip as, as well. So that uh, that has, is also starting to really take off nicely. So, you know, you look at these things and... W- They've got uh, a niche focus. It's not. We're not just trying to create these kind of general mountain bike trips for just anybody, uh, because there's just too much of that out there. Right. Oh, I love it, man. So where do I sign up? Yeah, sacredrides.com. Uh, <laughs> sacredrides.com. Or you can send an email to ride at sacredrides.com, and uh, our man Nate can uh, can help you uh, sort of discover if we're a good fit, and if we are, then what's the right trip for you. Cool. Well, Mike, let's go back to the the 10,000 foot level. We're looking down on a life that you've had in this industry now. Um, has it been rewarding? Would you change anything? Uh, yes and no. It, it is, um, it, it has been extremely rewarding. I, you know, still to this day get to have these incredible opportunities, incredible experiences simply because of the, the career path I've chosen. And, um, you know, just uh, last year, I went to Greenland to guinea pig, our, our Arctic Circle fat bike trip. Uh, that was one of the most incredible experiences of my, of my life. And uh, that was, you know, for that, that was my job that week was to go and test out, uh, test out this trip in one of the most spectacular places on the planet. So, you know, I've, I've had just these incredible experiences all over the world on my mountain bike, and I've met so many incredible people. And, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't change a thing, even the hardest parts of it, uh, you know, they brought me to this day and and they've all been learning opportunities along the way. So, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. It's, it's been a a real, um, it's been a real blessing to be able to devote my life to something that that I, I love so deeply. And that's, you know, that's really for a lot of people, it's really hard to say that, uh, that they feel that deeply connected to what they're doing. Mm. Wow. Well said. And I'm glad that uh, you answered the question that way. There's some risk. You could have said, no, man, it sucked all the way. I don't don't like this life. (laughs) (laughs) But I knew that you had to love it or you wouldn't still be doing it. And what an inspiration to other people who say, yeah, is it possible that I could do what I love and help other people do it too and make a life and a lifestyle out of that? You've done it and you show other people how to do it. So thanks for that, man. That's awesome. What a great example. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate your time today telling us about mountain biking, about adventure in general, and about your company, and even opening the hood and telling us about your entrepreneurial journey some. I find it inspirational, and I really appreciate your time. So thanks, Mike. Thanks, Kurt. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, and, uh, and uh, thanks, thanks to you for the opportunity. Uh, you bet. And for all of our listeners out there, you know, we're always talking about adventure sports and I always say, get out there and have some fun. Maybe your life adventure is starting an adventure related business of your own. That would be cool. So get out there, have some fun. Be sure to tune in Thursday when Kurt talks with Roger Thompson about adventure travel. Until then, guys, get out and have some fun.